Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to Episode 72 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, May 27, 2022. In today's show, we hear from conservatives who are concerned about climate change. Not only concerned, they are engaged in meaningful action. You will meet three young people with ties to the state of Utah. They are part of a growing movement in that state. Each are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Also joining us to share very good news about the recent Citizens Climate Conservative Conference is Nate Abercrombie, the Conservative Outreach Coordinator for Citizens Climate Lobby. And in the Art House, you will learn about the Cli-Fi Imaginarium, a new online resource that envisions the impact climate solutions will have on the near and distant future. People of faith play a vital role in talking about the causes and the impacts of climate change. They are also an essential part of the growing group of citizens and leaders stepping up to propose and pursue solutions. We are also seeing a groundswell of concern and engagement among young conservatives in the USA. Many of these are also Christian. Fusing faith, hope, love for humanity, and all nature, these young conservative Christians are finding their places in the climate movement. Today, you will meet three young conservatives who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay, um, my name is Hannah Rogers. Currently, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I grew up about 30 minutes south from Salt Lake City, Utah in a small town called Draper, Utah. Growing up, it was a fairly small town, but it's not the same that same way anymore. Caleb Christensen. I'm a father. spend a lot of time with my daughter as much as I can. And I'm a climate enthusiast. My full name is Trevor Alexander Jones, but you can call me Trevor. I grew up in Linwood, Washington, which is just outside of Seattle. And I currently live in Ogden, Utah, which is just outside of Salt Lake. First and foremost, a husband and a father. I have one beautiful little girl. She's three years old and she's She's giving us a run for our money. As well, I am LDS Mormon. That is very important to me. That is wrapped up in my identity. And lastly, I am what I would call a budding climate activist. I don't consider myself to be a radical or over-the-top zealot, but I do believe in practical solutions, and I believe that we have one planet. It's important to leave it just the way God gave it to us. A conservative, a Christian, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's kind of like the lens through which I view the whole world is as someone who cares very deeply about the principles of Jesus Christ. Another aspect of my personality is that um, I'm very into the outdoors. I love backpacking, running, hiking, anything like that. Caleb is currently in med school. Trevor is a structural engineer working in the solar industry. Which basically means that when someone wants to put solar panels on their house, I'm tasked with making sure that their house can take it and not cave in. And Hannah is a Citizens Climate Conservative Fellow. My job is as a conservative to talk to other conservatives and conservative lawmakers about climate change. I do a lot of grassroots organizing specifically with conservatives who are interested in advocating in the climate change sphere. I've done things like testify in subcommittee hearings. I've presented to high schools. I've attended conferences. I've organized events. I've done some tabling at Republican caucuses. I've done a lot of networking and staying in touch with people and keeping people up to date on everything that's happening in the conservative climate sphere. Oh, and Hannah is also a full-time undergraduate student. I am currently a sophomore at the University of Utah. I'm studying geography and sustainability with an emphasis in climate change dynamics. I was curious about why these young conservatives are so passionate about pursuing climate solutions. Climate change is a big deal. We need to do something about this. We need to get this right. Yeah, we only have one planet here. And golly, if uh, 
let's not get this one wrong. <laughs> a lot of Christians are really kind of of this idea that like, well, Jesus will come back and he'll sort it all out. I've really struggled with that for, for a while. Yeah, maybe that's true. But at the same time, I don't think he put us here to mess things up. I don't think we're here to disrespect other people. I don't think we're here to do any of these bad things. I think we're here to love each other and to care about one another and to to care about future generations and to not force God's hand because we've just gone and screwed it up. I care very deeply about responsible stewardship. It's disrespectful to God's creation to not take care of it. And I feel like it's a, it's a form of spirituality and worship for me to like preserve the way that the natural world is. And I don't believe it's Christ-like or compassionate to not care about those other members of our family. As someone who wants other people to enjoy their lives, I think that advocating for environmental protection and to advocate in the climate change sphere is really valuable. Climate change will affect the way that people will be able to live their lives. I've studied a lot about climate change and its effects, uh, its deferential effects on health outcomes, public health outcomes. What I'm really passionate about is studying how climate change is differentially affecting people in different socioeconomic statuses. For instance, if a natural disaster hit, poor people are obviously going to suffer more. The wealthier people tend to have more resources at their disposal and they can handle that. I've become super passionate about how climate change is going to affect different people differently. I feel like that's what I really want to devote a lot of my time to in my career. The economic implications of not addressing climate change sooner rather than later, they'll be devastating. It's economically smarter to address climate change right now. Like Hannah, Trevor and Caleb are active in Citizens Climate Lobby. I wanted to know about the solutions that are meaningful to them. I love carbon pricing. I lobbied for it two years ago. I went to Washington, D.C. and lobbied for it met with several senators on it. I particularly think economically driven bill on carbon pricing is the best. We can incentivize the change into the energy innovation of the future. It's going to happen. You know, you see Ford coming out with their all electric truck just recently, like the smartphone revolution, where within, I swear, five years, it was everyone had a flip phone, then all of a sudden everyone had a touch smartphone. And I feel like that same revolution is coming with cars. Yeah, one of the biggest reasons I, I'm interested and involved with CCL is because of our laser focus on a carbon tax. There is no substitute for the market, the free market. As a Republican, I believe that strongly. The free market is powerful and it incentivizes things and it has this effect of overcoming barriers because it aligns the incentives and it gets people really fired up. It gets entrepreneurs, it gets people who are resourceful, it gets a lot of capital all flowing when you can align the incentives. The nerd speak, if you will, is externality. And the word externality means either positive or negative, but either a cost or a benefit that is not paid by the person who's receiving the service. In the case of climate change, polluters can just dump as much carbon at a societal level. We're talking millions, billions, perhaps trillions of tons. Literally, the air is this open sewer. You've got this externality that is not accounted for when it comes to our goods and services. And in order to remedy that, you have to put a price on it. You have to take away the fact that it's this externality. You have to make them pay their fair share to dump into our air. But once you do that, all of a sudden people realize, okay, here is the real cost of carbon. Here's the real cost to pollute. Wow, okay, all of a sudden, 
nuclear power might start to look really good. Solar power looks even better. And then you'll get capital flowing into nuclear power that probably always should have been there. You'll get even more capital flowing into solar and wind and battery storage. You'll get innovation coming from that capital. And it's just this virtuous cycle. But I think the real key is, is a carbon tax, carbon fee and dividend, I think is an even better way to say it, an even more politically palatable way, because who doesn't like a dividend, right? And a fee always sounds better than a tax. But at the end of the day, I think if we have a carbon tax, we have a real shot at moving the needle on this. And I think without a carbon tax, it gets a lot harder. To some, these three may seem like outliers. Conservatives concerned about climate change? But according to a recent Gallup poll of Republican and right-leaning people ages 18 to 29, it reveals that almost two-thirds of them acknowledge climate change is caused by humans. Many of these young conservatives are very concerned about this. Older conservatives, though, are not on the same page. Well, not yet. And progressives can be quite dismissive of conservatives in the climate movement. The one thing that I strongly dislike is the way that more progressive and more liberal people talk about conservatives in the climate change sphere. I've had people insult my intelligence more times than I can count in the environmental sphere. They think that just because I have a different way of thinking about climate change solutions, that I am somehow mentally deficient. That's the only thing that I really run into. While there is a lot of conservatives that don't prioritize environmental protection, I think that I just probably have a different priority from them. It's difficult because conservatives are skeptical of my conservative credentials. Environmentalists are skeptical of my environmental credentials. People don't think that those two things can coexist at once. But they don't have to be mutually exclusive at all. The environment impacts everyone. No one is excluded from the way that climate change will affect the world. No one is going to be the exception to that. Me as a conservative and also as someone who cares about the environment should definitely have a voice at that table. The Republican Party in the United States is probably one of the only political collective groups that has climate change skepticism as a semi-official stance. That's so odd. But not all conservatives are skeptical of climate change. In fact, it's becoming more and more that that's the minority. One thing, you know, saying this with a little bit of an eye roll and kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But one thing that we conservatives are good at is digging our heels in and slowing things down. It's really important that we bring conservatives along to work on such a big issue as this. As young conservatives and members of the LDS Church, I wanted to know what they bring to the climate movement. I can move that needle a little bit so that people become less and less skeptical of climate change within the Republican Party, but also as someone who studies climate science at the university, also on the left with progressives, some of them also have a very nebulous, ambiguous idea of what climate change actually looks like. You know, humans are going to go extinct in 10 years and it's this chaos and stuff. That kind of fear and that kind of animosity and this like insanity about climate change is really detrimental to the work that I do and that other activists and environmentalists do. It inspires helplessness. It makes people feel hopeless. It makes them feel like there's nothing that they can do, that they should just roll over and die. Liberally-minded environmentalists have one of the lowest voter turnouts in the United States. I think that's because they feel like there's nothing that they can do. There's actually a lot that they can do. For me, I'd really want to cultivate a sense of hope and a sense of empowerment amongst both liberals and conservatives, that there is something that we can do to protect our environment and protect our, our families. There's a sense of hope that needs to be instilled on both sides. The belief, the doctrine, the ideas that have been presented on stewardship are very relevant to the conversation on climate change. Church leaders over the past haven't taken a strong of a stance on climate change, I think, because the, the church is global and church leaders don't want to turn away people who are still not comfortable with addressing climate change for one reason or another. The function of the church is to bring people to Christ and can't do that when people are so hung up on nitty-gritty details of culture or of politics, etc. 
And so I think the church is largely staying away from climate change because our current social sphere has made climate change a political issue when it shouldn't be. I'm hoping for the day when climate change leaves the political sphere and is more out there, like as a as a thing that everyone should understand. In that scenario, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would be a lot more supportive of the effort, including pouring out resources as it has in the past with different issues to fighting climate change. Back when I was a 15 or 16 year old, we went to church. There was a massive windstorm in Utah. The wind speeds were hurricane speeds, like category three, category four hurricane speeds. It did a lot of damage. We got to church. The leader of our congregation said, okay, let's go home and change and let's get to work. It was the neatest feeling of unity when we all went out and we spent the whole day helping people, getting people kind of back on their feet. Some of the trees had fallen on houses. People all of a sudden didn't have a place to live. People had car damage or the tree was blocking the road. We spent the whole day doing that and it was so exhilarating, so powerful to be a part of a movement that was bigger than myself. I have 110% complete, utter trust in my church to help out. I would push for more from my church in terms of decreasing carbon emissions and addressing climate change right now. But as far as the effects of climate change, I have total trust that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going to go above and beyond helping people who are displaced from climate events. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a massive program. They have canneries where they just make a huge amount of unperishable foods that can last for decades. I've volunteered at them before. Our 72-hour kit consists of a lot of food we can preserve for a long time. Of course, you never know when a disaster is going to hit. But then we also have a water filter, flashlights, medical supplies for sure. Just common household items that you'd never think twice of until all of a sudden you don't have it and you need it. The LDS faith and the LDS community is much more tight-knit than I think a lot of people are used to. And for people who leave, I think they have a lot of gripes about that where we're kind of all in each other's business and we're all checking on each other. and <laughs> But yeah, when someone falls on hard times, you will never see a more compassionate group. On a very large level, we operate some of the most robust infrastructure for providing for our needy members and for doing humanitarian service for those not of our faith. I've seen more times than I can count either someone going to the store and picking up groceries on the ward's budget, I've been the recipient of my family when we were growing up several times when we fell on hard times. We would take advantage of the institutional resources. There's a system of what's called bishops' storehouses. You can walk into your bishop and say, I've really fallen on some hard times. I could, I could use some help getting some food. Usually they say, no problem. They whip out their pad of paper. They put in a food order. You take the food order to the storehouse and you get this food free of charge. What a blessing. When otherwise my food cupboards would have been bare, what a blessing. The church is this beautiful organization that has so much to offer and they have so many resources at their disposal that it is disappointing to me to see that climate change hasn't been as much of a focus within like conference talks or kind of the organization that the church does on its own. I definitely think that the way the church approaches the natural world, it's here for human beings to enjoy. It's a very anthropocentric view that stems from a misreading of Genesis. Well, I consider it a misreading because I think that God didn't just create this earth for human beings. God created this earth for all creatures to live on. Like for many faith traditions, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints look for comfort, guidance, and inspiration from religious text and leaders. I asked Trevor and Hannah to share some quotes that are meaningful to them. One of my favorite ones is a quote from our current president, Russell M. Nelson. He, at the time, was not yet president. He was a member of the second highest ecclesiastical body in the church called the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This was given at a sermon back in April of 2000 
The sermon was titled The Creation, and President Nelson said this, As beneficiaries of the divine creation, what shall we do? We should care for the earth, be wise stewards over it, and preserve it for future generations. And we are to love and care for one another. That is simple but profound to me. It's something that I try to live to. It's something that I try to take quite seriously. I just find that the world is beautiful. The world is stunning. There are other profound quotes and and sayings, I guess, that to me show the interconnectedness of both science and religion. With those, it's incumbent upon us to really to listen to science, to listen to what science has to say about how we in the 21st century have responsibility to take care of our planet and care for it and be wise stewards over it. Here's a quote from Richard G. Scott. He's one of the general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He wrote this in the Enzyme in May 1996. Do you take time to discover each day how beautiful your life can be? How long has it been since you watched the sunset? The departing rays kissing the clouds, trees, hills, and lowlands goodnight. Sometimes tranquility, sometimes with exuberant bursts of color and form. What of the wonder of a cloudless night, when the Lord unveils the marvels of his heavens, the twinkling stars, the moonlight rays, to ignite our imagination with his greatness and glory? How captivating to watch a seed planted in a fertile soil germinate, gather strength and send forth a tiny, seemingly insignificant sprout. Patiently, it begins to grow and develop its own character, led by the genetic code the Lord has provided to guide its development. With care, it surely will become what it is destined to be. Maybe a lily crowned with grace and beauty, maybe a fragrant spearmint plant, a peach, an avocado, or a beautiful blossom with its own unique delicacy, hue and fragrance. When last did you observe a tiny rosebud form? Each day it develops new and impressive character, more promise of beauty until it becomes a majestic rose. You are one of the noblest of God's creations. His intent is that your life be gloriously beautiful regardless of your circumstances. And as you are grateful and obedient, you can become all that God intends you to be. Trevor, Caleb, and Hannah also shared about their faith. For each of them, it is the center of their lives. After high school, both Trevor and Caleb went on extended mission trips with the church. I've always been LDS, yeah. I was born and raised in the faith. I have pioneer ancestry. I have people that came over from the very earliest days of the church, back when it wasn't even in Utah, back when it was being founded with Joseph Smith back in the, back in the Midwest. It's hard to pinpoint any one watershed moment for me. It's always been important to me, I would say. And there have been a few different times in my life where its importance has, has grown, certainly. I'd say maybe in my adolescence, when my brother actually, my brother has actually left the faith. He's no longer a member of the church or no longer affiliates with it. And so in my adolescence, when he was leaving, he really challenged me on some things. And that forced me, I think, to think deeply about it and to decide, you know, is this something that I agree with? Is this something I stick with? Is this important to me? Really the mission, the mission really brings it all to the forefront because you don't really last long in the mission if you don't know that you believe it. My faith has continued to grow in importance to me in my adulthood. Because for one reason, it's, it's very much informed my views on environmentalism and stewardship and on uh, respecting and loving and caring for the creation that, that God has given us, as well as it's grown for me in my adulthood as I've married and seen 
my daughter and I want that foundation of morals and a moral compass and moral fiber for her as well. We worship the Jesus Christ spoken of in the Bible, in the New Testament, and prophesied in the Old Testament. The one that has died for my sins and has made it so I can be saved from death and be able to go back and live with God again. That is a very basic belief that is shared amongst us and evangelical Christians, Protestants, etc. And then the more detailed intricacies of it all, there's plenty of room for argument, but I'm not as interested in that. I actually served a two-year mission in Florida in the Panhandle in Tallahassee. I almost went on a mission. I really thought about serving an LDS mission. Unfortunately for me, it just didn't end up working out because I just didn't feel a calling to do so. I feel like God has called me to protect the environment, to be an advocate against climate change. This work that I do to preserve the environment serves me in a much more spiritual way and much deeper way than I think serving a mission would. Mostly because I don't feel like I just am the missionary type. I wish that I was, but I feel like what I'm doing is much, much more spiritual for me. As someone who believes that the second highest commandment is to love one another, and the first highest commandment is to worship God, like I feel like preserving the natural world fulfills both of those in a very dynamic way. It's not just about going to church or attending the temple or you know, reading my scriptures every day or praying every night, even though I do all of those things and I participate every week, I have a calling, all this stuff. It's about internalizing the message of Jesus Christ and living that gospel and that I, that ideology, that those principles to the best that I can. I worship Jesus Christ in everything that I do. Everything that I do is a reflection of what I value. That's probably the best way that I can describe my faith is that I try to live it out in every interaction I have with someone, you know, the way I cook, the way I eat, the way I talk to people, the clothing I buy, who I interact with, who, how I talk to about, about people when they're not there, my family values, the way I respect my parents. It lives out in everything that I do. Trevor Jones believes the LDS Church has a unique role to play in the Republican Party and the conservative movement. I think that we've got a unique perspective that aligns well with Republican values, especially as it comes to home and family, generally limited government, but with some key differences. One of them being this sense of stewardship and the sense of we don't own this planet. In fact, we don't own anything. We are stewards in all cases over what God has allowed us the privilege of enjoying in this life. That can make some people a little uncomfortable, but I think that's kind of the Mormon ethos of, of responsibility and care. I've also heard said that Mormonism and Mormons, due to our collective experiences going out and being with other cultures and peoples, is one of the reasons that we never really warmed up to kind of this nativism that is and has overtaken the, the Republican Party. So just on a, a couple of key points, Mormons and Mormon lawmakers can really slide away from the more, I don't really know how to say it, but kind of the rest of the, the GOP. That's fine. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. I think a diversity of ideas is very important, even within parties in order to make sure that we're not a monolith, in order to make sure that this groupthink doesn't take over because, well, groupthink can be very dangerous, and we've had historical examples of that. Caleb Christensen has a message to fellow church members. Because I've met many that are kind of skeptical of the need for change dealing with climate change. So we have temples and... The average listener probably won't know too much about temples. We have a ceremony inside the temple where we make promises with God. It's very sacred. A huge portion of that ceremony, of that ordinance, deals with the creation of the world. At least in my personal belief, my personal understanding, God is trying to tell us that he spent a lot of time with the creation of the earth. I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on our responsibility to take care of it, to dress it, to be good stewards of it. 
That responsibility can be seen in a lot of the teachings of the church. We don't have to be perfect, but to feel overwhelmed by how much there is to do and to decide, well, it's so overwhelming, I just won't do anything, is completely defeating the purpose of any motivation that would come from that doctrine or from the teachings of church leaders in the past. And Hannah Rogers has another passage to share with us. There is a Book of Mormon scripture, Alma 5, 59 and, and 60, who like kind of reminds me of stewardship. This scripture I remember when I read it the first time, I was like probably like 13 or 14, and it has stuck with me since then. Alma 5, 59 starts and it says, For what shepherd is there among you, having many sheep doth not watch over them? that the wolves enter not and devour his flock. And behold, if a wolf enter his flock, doth he not drive him out? Yea, and at last, if he can, he will destroy him. And now I say unto you, and this is verse 60, and it says, And now I say unto you, that the good shepherd doth call after you. And if you will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold, and ye are his sheep. And he commandeth you, that ye suffer no ravenous wolves to enter among you, that ye may not be destroyed. I feel like for me, it reminds me of my calling because, first of all, Jesus Christ is my protector. He's watching out for me. He's my companion constantly. And if I want to emulate Jesus Christ, I feel like I have to be a protector. I have to be someone who's compassionate about other people and about other animals. Many thanks to Hannah, Caleb, and Trevor for joining us for today's episode. You are listening to Citizens Climate Radio. If you have ideas for shows or guests, or if you have any feedback, email radio at citizensclimate.org. Hi, I'm Drew Irely. I am the Conservative Outreach Director for Citizens Climate Lobby. My path to being a conservative, uh, concerned about climate action, was definitely a long one. Growing up, it was a very rural area. You had to be into the outdoors or you were gonna be bored out of your mind. So I grew up doing a lot of hunting, fishing. I was the only the, the second person on my mom's side to graduate high school. I graduated June 6th, 05, at like 7.30 at night. And by eight o'clock the next morning, I was on my way to basic training on my 17th birthday. <laughs> had deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, rotations through Cuba. It was during this time that I really became concerned with energy infrastructure, but I wasn't ready to take action yet. It took the birth of a 10-pound baby girl with cheeks so big she couldn't open her eyes to really get me to open mine. My life just went from the next 50 years to the next 75. What if she's the veteran that follows in my footsteps and she's in the VA suffering from exposure? You know, what if she's on a fossil fuel route and, you know, subject to an IED? How will I be able to look at her in the eye and say, I knew that this could be an issue that you would have to face and I chose to do nothing about it. It's why we fight wars. You know, we fight them now so our kids don't have to. I am fighting climate change now so my daughters don't have to. A lot of people, you know, they say conservatives don't care about climate change and, you know, it's not true at all. We just want sensible policies that don't destroy the economy in trying to find a solution. We have that here at Citizens Climate Lobby. There are a lot of leadership opportunities for conservatives, especially in red states and districts with Republican congressional offices. Conservatives can also join CCL's Conservative Caucus. It's a national group of Republicans and other right-of-center individuals where conservatives can get together and regularly meet online and have strictly conservative-based conversations. Sharing our personal story is how we make a difference. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host RepublicEN.org's EcoRight Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, 
Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an EcoRight leader bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the EcoRight Speaks. Our good news story today comes from Nate Abercrombie. He's the conservative outreach coordinator for Citizens Climate Lobby. Nate has good news to share with us about a recent event that brought conservatives from all over the U.S. to D.C. to talk about climate solutions. The event was a huge success. Nate, before you share your good news, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Oof. It's always interesting trying to explain my job to people because... um, (laughs) They've never heard of someone who essentially tries to organize and train climate advocates. It's it's very it's very new to everyone who I ever describe it to. But that is essentially the gist of what I say, that I try to uh, recruit right-leaning uh, people who are interested in climate advocacy and uh, try to make them, well, effective advocates. I've always had a, a strong interest in the outdoors. I grew up fishing, hunting surfing and then went to college in uh, the Shenandoah Mountains and uh, spent a lot of time hiking when I could. Like most people in my generation, we've sort of always known it was around. And if you're anything like me, like the gravity of it probably set in sometime in your like early teens. It was emotionally challenging to grapple with. I really learned about it first in school, as I think many other people in my generation would agree. It's been hard to navigate my feelings around that. And it's one of the main reasons I decided to take up this job was so that I could sort of uh, get at that and do work that I know is uh, meaningful and and helpful and going to make a difference down the line. I define myself as someone who trusts individuals. I think that is really the the key element of conservatism is is an element of, of trust and belief in your fellow man. I trust the actions of the individuals to accumulate in a way that leads to, you know, prosperity and free markets and freedoms. That's really the core element of what has led me to this ideology and allowed me to uh, sort of retain it, despite all sorts of, you know, social media influence, media influence and coworker influence with uh, liberal ideology. I still find myself believing that, you know, a, a diffused system of responsibility and economics and government is, is truly the best way that we can organize ourselves as a society. And now at the end of March this year, you were one of several people who put together this conference in D.C. for right-leaning climate advocates. And you had nearly over 100 people, young and old, show up. And that's good news for sure. It's very good news. But you have even better news. Republican members of Congress also came to the event. They showed up, they walked into the room, and immediately 100 people stood up to their feet and started clapping and gave them a standing ovation for for coming in and being there. And I think that was a really powerful thing and made those members of Congress feel like really appreciated. Uh, We had five members of Congress show up and one recorded video for us. And that is the most members of Congress we've had at a CCL event ever. And they were all Republican. Yeah, that is great news. What was a special moment for you during the conference? A special moment for me was that what we originally planned to do with some training sessions we were having on the second day was sort of uh, delineate and separate the groups by, you know, age and have one track where we train up younger conservatives on like media and stuff and older conservatives on, uh, you know, policy stuff. But we realized, you know, that didn't really suit the experience levels of the volunteers. So we just decided to make it new volunteers go here and people who've been around for a while go here. It was amazing seeing the diversity in age in the rooms that we had and uh, how we had people who were 17 years old asking questions and then someone else who was 70 years old and retired asking questions. And they were both equally enthused trying to figure out, you know, how they can most contribute to this cause. And that that was a really cool thing for me to see. Now, I imagine you were very busy (laughs) during the conference, helping things get rolling. Now that it's over, what are some things you learned about the work that you and the conservative outreach team and volunteers are doing? In the buildup to this conference, I did learn a lot about communication and outreach, trying to get something from people. You want them to show up to this conference. That's That's a tricky thing. 
it was really impressed on me, the, the power of one-on-one interaction. That's how we got so many people who are on the fence to, uh, to show up in the end was by making sure that their needs were addressed, their concerns were addressed, and that they felt like they were wanted there because I was giving them individual calls. I was emailing them all the time. And that was really my big takeaway about communication is to make sure that uh, you're giving people the individual attention they deserve. So for a conservative listening, what would you like them to know about their role in addressing climate change and our energy needs? I think the first step really is helping them realize that action and change isn't just going to happen by itself. Members of Congress, people in positions of power need to hear from other conservatives in order to know that this is an issue they care about. And that by sitting on the sidelines, even if you believe climate change is real and it's a threat and we need to do something about it, you're selling yourself short and you're doing a disservice to you know future peoples by not becoming more engaged on this issue. So really getting them to take that first step of action and making them realize that this is something that will require you know some effort on their part. I think that's the most important first step you can instill on in people. Anything else you want to add? You know, this conference was a lot of moving parts and so many CCL staff and volunteers pitched in their time to help out, put it on. So I'd like to extend a big thank you to all of them. It wasn't just conservative outreach. It was the events team, the DC team, marketing, comms, everyone. It was it was really well done. And we want to thank the staff profusely. Thank you, Nate. That was Nate Abercrombie, conservative outreach coordinator for Citizens Climate Lobby. If you want to learn more about conservative climate solutions, visit cclusa.org slash conservatives. That's cclusa.org slash conservatives. But wait, there's more good news. Eric Fine, the group leader for the CCL chapter in Greater New Haven, Connecticut, told me about a new limited series podcast that's all about carbon pricing. And since many of you love to talk about carbon fee and dividend, I asked the host of the show to tell us about what they're up to. Thanks, Peterson. I'm Casey Pickett, host of Yale University's Pricing Nature podcast. And I'm Naomi Schimberg, a senior at Yale and producer of the podcast. This year, we found that big thinkers are asking how to change the global financial system to reverse climate change. There's so much work going into carbon pricing systems that internalize the externalities of fossil fuel use. But we've mainly focused on penalizing carbon emissions, shaping behavior with sticks. But how do we incentivize good work? Doing no harm is different than doing good. When we face a real global crisis, we don't simply have time to be neutral on the issue. That's Vanessa Fagens-Turner, the executive director of Bank Forward and a candidate for Congress from New York. She says we need to shape policy behavior with carrots and not just sticks. This spring, we spoke with leading thinkers about the idea of a carbon currency, a way to build into our economic system rewards for carbon reduction and storage. Australian engineer Delton Chen is developing the idea, and science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson put the concept at the center of his book, the Ministry for the Future. The idea is people would get paid one unit of carbon currency by removing one ton of carbon from the atmosphere or preventing it from going up in the first place. Now, this idea is still in the very early stages, but it's worth thinking about and criticizing. That's probably the only way we'll get it right if or when we do implement some version of it. Well, Casey, the economists we spoke with definitely agreed with you on the whole worth criticizing part. Here's Susie Kerr, chief economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. So the economists that I spoke to uh, were, were very skeptical about it. Frankly, they all think it's slightly magical thinking. But other economists think the 21st century needs more creative, if not magical, ideas. Kate Rayworth, author of Donut Economics, joined us for the conversation with Delton Chen and Kim Stanley Robinson. I think finance should be in service to a real economy that is in service to life. And as we know right now, life is massively transgressing the life support systems of our planet. So if we can create jobs in the world that create good work of restoring the living world, of drawing down carbon so that we reconnect with the carbon cycle, that we restore and rewild lands and bring back the richness of ecosystem. If that can be turned into good, well-paid work, I'm all in. 
Check out Pricing Nature for two full-length episodes on carbon currency and other big ideas for making the global financial system work for the 21st century. Back to you, Peterson. Thank you, Naomi and Casey. I started listening to your series, and I'm learning so much. You can hear Pricing Nature wherever you get podcasts. If you have good news you want to share on the show, email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Now it's time for the art house. I want to tell you about the Cli-Fi Imaginarium. I know it sounds so fantastical, right? A group of climate advocates in the UK were tired of so much talk about dreadful climate impacts. They felt there was not enough conversation going on about resources that address actual solutions. They decided that they were completely over dystopia. Using some of the solutions outlined in Project Drawdown, they now organize free monthly online workshops for anyone. And imagine, what if? In these Intro to Cli-Fi workshops, they ask what if we incorporate one of these solutions? How will the world change? How will the neighborhood change? Some of the topics they consider are district heating, tree intercropping, refrigeration, reducing food waste, alternative cement, tidal energy, and solar thermal water. I attended one of the workshops on district heating. I admit I was skeptical at first. Sure, it sounds like a great practical solution, but it's not a terribly inspiring topic. Sophia, the facilitator of that session, led us through some prompts and immediately compelling questions started to emerge. What will homeowners do with the space created once boilers in their homes are obsolete and removed? How will heating a string of homes end up costing less for residents? And what will the residents do with that extra income? They gave us time to write our stories. They then invited us to come back in two weeks to fine-tune them if we liked. Anyone who attends the Intro to Cli-Fi workshop is eligible to submit their story to the Cli-Fi Imaginarium. This is a storehouse of creative, inspiring, and sometimes very funny stories. They all envision a world filled with practical and highly effective climate solutions. So if you need a shot of inspiration and a positive vision of our future, I encourage you to visit the Cli-Fi Imaginarium. You can find it at withmanyroots.com. That's withmanyroots.com. And maybe you even will want to attend one of the Intro to Cli-Fi Fiction workshops to create your own story. Just visit withmanyroots.com. Who knows? Your fictional story may just one day become a wonderful reality. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me here on episode 72 of Citizens Climate Radio. Coming up next month, you will hear stories of transformation. CCL founder Marshall Saunders will share his personal journey. He was a Texas businessman, and he literally paved paradise and put in a parking lot. No, seriously, he did. And he also then inspired hundreds of thousands of people to pursue a sensible, practical, and significant climate solution. You will also hear from Stephanie Munguia, a young woman with Cuban and Puerto Rican roots who since the age of 11 has been deeply engaged in the natural world. One of the newest Citizens Climate staff members, Stephanie reveals how much the organization has grown and points out where we can go from here. Plus, you will hear singer-songwriter Jody Heights and her new song, The Iceberg. The episode premieres June 24th, 2022. If you like Citizens Climate Radio and you want to support the work we do, visit citizensclimateeducation.org. There you will learn how to make a tax-deductible contribution. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution to reduce pollution. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference. We want to tell you more about it. Visit cclusa.org slash priceoncarbon. That's cclusa.org slash priceoncarbon. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peter Santiscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. 
Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Montorano, Flannery Winchester, Katie Sarkreski, Barrett Thorson, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Perra. The music on today's show comes from EpidemicSound.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Citizen C Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, radio, at Citizen C Radio. Look for the podcast at citizensclimatelobby.org to see our show notes and find links to our guests. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Hi there, I'm Ben Yashua Davis. And I'm Nicole Deeroff. Ben and I are the hosts of the new podcast, Climate Changed. Yes, and we also have something else in common. Nicole and I are both parents. I am a father to two amazing children. Michael is my six-year-old creative social butterfly, and Genevieve is my sweet and ridiculously ferocious two-year-old. And I'm the mother to a second grader. Oh man, he's about to be a third grader. Parenting comes with so many unique joys and challenges, and parenting in a climate-changed world in particular raises so many questions for us. As our children are discovering the wonders of the natural world, how much do we tell them about the ecological disasters happening all around us? And how do we create space for their grief and anger? And how do we prepare them to live in a world that is already different from the one we knew as children? How do we raise resilient children who are prepared for the trauma that's predicted for their lifetimes? And how do we instill in them empathy and love for all earthlings? As parents, Christians, citizens, and friends, we talk a lot about these issues. So we decided to bring others into the conversation. In the first season of Climate Change, we connect with thought leaders, ministers, activists, and other parents who are considering similar questions. People like Karina Newsom, one of the founders of Hashtag Black Birders Week. And Pacific Islander and fellow parent, poet Craig Santos Perez. And Kiana Pardilla, a young Penobscot woman in Maine who is connecting children with ancient indigenous practices. We do not pretend to have all the answers. Yeah, we have many more questions than answers, but we want to share them with you and invite you to join us as we wrestle with these big issues. Subscribe today to Climate Change, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Season one premieres June 2022. The Climate Change podcast is a project of the BTS Center in beautiful Portland, Maine.